Section 89 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 2 Again the Port Bell. Gilead had, in fact, arrived at St. Sampson after nightfall, nearer ten o'clock than nine, after a trip devoid of incident, but a little slow, owing to the weight of his cargo. Gilead had calculated the hour. The half-flood had made. There was moonlight and water, so that he could enter the port. The little harbor was asleep. A few vessels were anchored there. Their sails brailed upon the yards, topsails furled and without lights. At the further end, several fishing-boats under repair were visible on the careenage, great dismasted and stripped hulls lifting above their planking, pierced with openings here and there, the curving points of their denuded framework, bearing a strange resemblance to dead beetles lying on their backs with their legs in the air. As soon as he had passed the mouth of the harbor, Gilead examined the port and the quay. There was no light anywhere, either at Le Brave or elsewhere. There were no passers-by, with the exception, perhaps, of a man who had just entered or left the parsonage. And even then one could not be sure that it was a person, since the night blurs all that it draws, and the moonlight never makes anything otherwise than indistinct. Distance added to the obscurity. The parsonage of that day was situated on the other side of the port, on the place where a covered shipyard has been constructed at the present day. Gilead had quietly come alongside of Le Brave and had moored the paunch to the ring of the Durande under Mesletierie's window. Then he had leapt over the rail and landed. Gilead, leaving the paunch at the quay behind him, turned the corner of the house, passed through one little street, then another, did not even glance at the branch of the path which led to the Bure de la Rue, and in a few moments he halted in that nook of the wall where there were wild mallows with rose-colored flowers in June, holly, ivy, and nettles. It is there that, hidden under the brambles, seated on a stone, many a time on summer days, and for long hours together, and for whole months, he had gazed over the wall, which was so low as to tempt him to step across, at the garden of Le Brave and through the branches of the trees at two windows belonging to a certain chamber of the house. He found his stone, his nettle, the wall as low, the nook as dark as ever, and there he crouched down, crawling in like an animal, re-entering its hole, rather than walking. Once seated he made no further movement. He gazed. Again he beheld the garden, the paths, the clumps of bushes, the beds of flowers, the house, the two windows of the chamber. The moon showed him this dream. It is terrible that one should be forced to breathe. He did what he could to keep from doing so. It seemed to him that he beheld a phantom paradise. He was afraid it would all fly away. It was almost impossible that these things should really be before his eyes, and if they were there, it could only be with the imminent danger of vanishing, always pertaining to things divine. A breath, and all would be dissipated. Gilead trembled at this thought. Quite close to him in the garden, at the edge of a walk, was a wooden bench painted green. The reader will remember this bench. 
Gilliatt gazed at the two windows. He thought of the slumber of some one possible in that chamber. Behind that wall some one was sleeping. He would have liked to be elsewhere. He would have preferred to die rather than to go away. He thought of a breath heaving abreast. She, that mirage, that whiteness in a cloud, that floating obsession of his mind, she was there. He thought of the inaccessible who was asleep and so near and within reach, as it were, of his ecstasy. He thought of the impossible woman sleeping, and visited also by visions, of the creature longed for, distant, indiscernible, with her eyes closed and her brow in her hand, of the mystery of the slumber of the ideal being, of the dreams possible to a dream. He dared not think beyond that, and yet he did. He ventured into almost disrespectful familiarity in his reverie, the quantity of feminine form which an angel can have, disturbed him. The hours of night emboldened timid eyes to furtive glances. He was vexed with himself for going so far. He feared to profane by reflection upon it. In spite of himself, forced, constrained, quivering, he gazed into the invisible. He endured the thrill and almost the pain of picturing to himself a petticoat on a chair, a mantle flung on the carpet, a girdle loosened, a fichu. He imagined a corset with its lace trailing on the ground, stockings, garters. His soul was in the stars. The stars are made for the human heart of a poor man like Gilliatt, no less than for the human heart of a millionaire. Up to a certain degree of passion, every man is subject to profoundly dazzling impressions. If his be a wild and primitive nature, this is all the more true. An uncultivated mind is most susceptible of reverie. Ecstasy is a fullness which overflows like any other. The sight of those windows was almost too much for Gilliatt. All at once he beheld her herself. From amid the branches of a thicket which had already been made dense by the spring, there came forth, with an ineffable, spectral, and celestial slowness, a figure, a robe, a divine face, almost a radiance under the moon. Gilliatt felt himself grow weak. It was Deruchette. Deruchette approached. She paused. She retrieved several steps as though to return, paused again, then came back and seated herself on the wooden bench. The moon shone through the trees. A few clouds wandered among the pale stars. The sea murmured to the gloom in a low tone. The town was asleep. A mist was rising from the horizon. The melancholy was profound. Deruchette inclined her head with that pensive glance which gazes attentively at nothing. She was seated in profile. She was almost bareheaded, having a cap, but untied, which allowed a view of the commencement of hair on the back of her dainty neck. She was mechanically twisting one string of this cap round her finger. The half-gloom outlined her statue-like hands. Her gown was of one of those shades which by night appear white. The trees rustled as though sensible of the enchantment which emanated from her. The tip of one of her feet was visible. 
In her downcast lids there was that vague contraction which indicates a repressed tear or a thought suppressed. Her arms had the ravishing indecision of not knowing where to rest themselves. Something floating was mingled with her whole attitude. It was a gleam rather than a light, the grace of a goddess. The folds of the bottom of her skirt were exquisite. Her adorable face was wrapped in virgin meditation. She was so near that it was terrible. Gilliatt could hear her breathe. In the distance a nightingale was singing. The stirring of the wind among the branches set in motion the ineffable silence of the night. Derichette, pretty and divine, appeared in this twilight like the resultant of these rays and these perfumes. This immense and scattered charm ended mysteriously in her and was there concentrated, and in her was its flowering. She seemed the flower soul of all that shadow. All that shadow hovering about Diarouchette weighed upon Gilliatt. He was bewildered. What he felt transcends words. Emotion is always new, and words have been always in use. Hence the impossibility of expressing emotion. There is such a thing as the overwhelming of rapture. To see Derouchette, to see her herself, to see her dress, her cap, to see the ribbon which was rolling round her finger. Can such a thing be imagined? Was it possible he was near her? He heard her breathe, so she did breathe? Then the stars breathe. Gilliatt was thrilled. He was the most miserable and the most intoxicated of men. He knew not what to do. The delirium of beholding her was annihilating him. What? Was she really there? Was he really here? His ideas, dazzled and fixed, rested upon this creature as upon a precious stone. He gazed at that neck and hair. He did not even tell himself that all was now his, that in a short time, tomorrow perhaps, he should have the right to take off that cap, he should have the right to untie that ribbon. He had never for a moment conceived such an excess of audacity as to dream of that. To touch with the thought is almost the same as to touch with the hand. Love was to Gilead what honey is to the bear, a delicate and exquisite dream. He thought confusedly. He did not know what possessed him. The nightingale sang. He felt as if he were about to expire. To rise, to leap over the wall, to approach, to say, It is I, to speak to Derouchette, such an idea never occurred to him. If it had occurred to him he would have fled. If anything approaching a thought did succeed in making its way through his mind, it was this, that Derouchette was there, that he needed nothing more, and that this was the beginning of eternity. A noise aroused her from her reverie, and him from his ecstasy. Someone was walking in the garden. Who it was could not be seen because of the trees. It was the footstep of a man. Derichette raised her eyes. The steps drew near, then ceased. The person who had been walking had stopped. He must be very close at hand. The path on which the bench stood wound between two clumps of bushes. The person was there, in that passage, a few paces from the bench. 
chance had so arranged the denseness of the branches that Deruchette could see, while Gilliatt could not. The moon cast a shadow on the ground from the thicket to the bench. Gilliatt saw this shadow. He looked at Deruchette. She was very pale. Her half-open mouth gave vent to a cry of surprise. She had half risen from the bench and fallen back upon it. There was a mixture of fright and fascination in her attitude. Her astonishment was an enchantment full of fear. She wore upon her lips almost the radiance of a smile, and in her eyes a gleam of tears. She was as though transfigured by a presence. It did not seem as though the being whom she beheld could be of this earth. The reflection of an angel was in her gaze. The being, who was only a shadow to Gilead, spoke. A voice proceeded from the thicket, sweeter than the voice of a woman, but a man's voice nevertheless. Gilead heard these words. Mademoiselle, I see you every Sunday and Thursday. I am told that formerly you did not come so often. It is a remark which has been made, and I beg your pardon. I have never spoken to you. It was my duty. Today I speak to you. It is my duty. I must first address myself to you. The Kashmir sails tomorrow. This is why I am come. You walk in your garden every evening. It would be an ill thing in me to know your habits if I did not cherish my present intention. Mademoiselle, you are poor. After tomorrow I shall be rich. Will you have me for your husband? Deruchette clasped her hands like a suppliant, and gazed at the man who was speaking to her, mute, with fixed eyes, trembling from head to foot. The voice continued, I love you. God has made the heart of man to keep silence. Since God promises eternity, it is because he wishes man not to be alone. There is for me one woman on earth. It is you. I think of you as of a prayer. My faith is in God, and my hope is in you. The wings which I have you wear. You are my life and my heaven already. Monsieur, said Deruchette, there is no one in the house to answer you. The voice rose again. I have cherished this sweet dream. God does not forbid dreams. You produce upon me the effect of a glory. I love you passionately, mademoiselle. You are holy innocence. I know that this is the hour when all your household are asleep, but I had no choice of any other moment. Do you remember the passage in the Bible which was read to us? Genesis, chapter 25. I have thought of it ever since. I have often read it over. The Reverend Herod said to me, You need a rich wife. I answered him, No, I need a poor wife. Mademoiselle, I speak to you without approaching you. I will even retreat farther back if you desire that my shadow should not touch your feet. You are the sovereign. You shall come to me if you will. I love, and I wait. You are the living form of benediction. Monsieur, stammered Deruchette, I did not know that I had been noticed on Sundays and Thursdays. The voice continued. 
one cannot contend against angelic things love is all the law marriage is canaan you are the promised land of beauty oh full of grace i salute you Derichette replied i did not think that i was doing any more harm than other people who were constant in attendance the voice pursued god has set his intentions in the flowers in the dawn in the spring it is his will that we should love you are beautiful in this sacred gloom of night this garden has been cultivated by you and in its perfumes there is something of your breath mademoiselle the meetings of souls do not depend upon themselves it is no fault of ours you were present nothing more i was there nothing more i have done nothing but feel that i loved you sometimes my eyes were raised to you i was in the wrong but what was i to do it was while looking at you that it all came about one cannot help oneself there are mysterious wills above us the first of temples is the heart the terrestrial paradise to which i aspire is to have your soul in my house do you consent to it as long as i was poor i said nothing i know your age you are twenty-one i am twenty-six i go to-morrow if you refuse me i shall not return be my betrothed will you my eyes have already put this question to you more than once in spite of me i love you answer me i will speak to your uncle as soon as he can receive me but i turn to you first of all it is to rebecca that one pleads for rebecca unless you do not love me deruchette bent her head and murmured oh i adore him this was spoken so low that only gilliatt heard it she remained with bowed head as if by hiding her face in the shadow she could conceal her thoughts a pause ensued the leaves on the trees did not stir it was a solemn and peaceful moment when the slumber of things is added to the slumber of beings and when the night seems to be listening to the heart throbs of nature in this musing time there rose like a harmony completing silence the immense murmur of the sea the voice began again mademoiselle deruchette started the voice continued alas i am waiting for what are you waiting your reply god has heard it said deruchette then the voice became almost sonorous and at the same time sweeter than ever these words proceeded from the thicket as from a burning bush thou art my affianced bride rise and come may the blue canopy wherein lie the stars be present at this acceptance of my soul by thy soul and may our first kiss be mingled with the firmament deruchette rose and remained motionless for a moment her gaze riveted before her no doubt upon another's eyes then with slow steps her head erect her arms drooping and her fingers outspread as when one treads upon unfamiliar ground she went toward the thicket and disappeared 
A moment later, instead of one shadow on the sandy walk, there were two. They were mingled together, and Gilead saw at his feet the embrace of these two shadows. Time flows from us as from an hourglass, and we have no consciousness of its flight, especially at certain supreme moments. On the one hand, this couple, who were ignorant of the presence of this witness, and who did not see him. On the other hand, this witness who did not see this couple, but who knew they were there. How many minutes did they remain thus in that mysterious suspense? It would be impossible to say. All at once a distant noise broke forth, a voice shouted, Help! and the port bell sounded. It is probable that this intoxicated and celestial happiness did not hear this tumult. The bell continued to ring. Anyone who sought Gilead in the corner of the wall would not have found him there. End of chapter 2 Again the port bell 